0: Thank you for joining the Relief from Grief podcast by Miriam Ribiat and Hevra Lomde Mishnah. Our goal is to help you find the chizik you may need and the comfort of knowing that you are not alone. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining again the Relief from Grief podcast. Um, Today, I'm very, very excited to be interviewing Mrs. Sarah Kornblatt. Um, Sarah has a private practice where she provides virtual and in-person therapy or coaching sessions. And through her practice, she started a branch called the Thriving Working Mom, and she's very excited to use that as a channel to motivate and support working moms everywhere. And the reason that I want to interview her today is because um, I really want to hear her story, how she got from working with grief to where she is today to working with moms. So, thank you so much for coming on. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be speaking with you.
0: Okay. So I know that you started off as a palliative care social worker. And I just, you know, really wanted to hear how you got into this. I know you started as a young girl. I'm wondering how this happened.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, so just like to backtrack, um, when I was choosing what field or career to go into, um, I definitely knew that I loved listening to people. And I loved supporting my friends. And I also knew that I was good at being there for people without taking it home with me. Like I wasn't the kind of person that if my friend was going through a hard time that I couldn't sleep, you know, like I I knew that like, I naturally had some kind of like good boundaries between my emotions and other people's emotions. And so I felt that I could go into like a helping profession without it, like taking over my life. And and. I feel like that's really important just in general for people listening or people even considering careers to know yourself, know what you can emotionally handle. So I already went into social work, you know, knowing that I had the capacity to handle or or to be able to be present with other people's pain, you know? Wow. That's like amazing
0: to have such a, like such a a large self-awareness at that, you know, at that stage of life. I wanted to ask you like this, like, how did you not feel like, you know, we're so good us from ladies that always feeling guilty. So how did you not feel guilty that you could go home and you could go to sleep or you could go shopping, even though you just heard your friend's awful story that she's going through?
1: Oh, like just like not professionally, just in my real life. Right. I don't, I don't know. Cause it wasn't even, I don't, it's not even an option. I can't imagine like suffering in my house. Cause- <laughs> because someone's <laughs> going through a hard time. <laughs> I just like, it's not it's not how I'm, I'm made up. Like, I think like I'm a very present, like in the moment kind of person, like where I'm not just like constantly like room, I don't ruminate. Do you know what I mean? So like, I know that about myself. So interesting,
0: especially that word ruminate. I've been hearing it a lot lately. I think it's a new, the new buzzword of today. No.
1: <laughs> Is it? Wow. I'm like <laughs> super on the ball. <laughs> Yes. I've been hearing it so much. (laughs) Okay. um,
0: So you started dealing with, um, with the, with young children and their families, I should say young children that were terminally ill and their families. Right. So,
1: so first when I graduated with my master's and like a nice from girl, I graduated with my master's at 22. (laughs) Um, I was applying for like, I had gone to school in, in Baltimore. And then I moved to Houston, Texas. And so when i like, so I graduated, got on a plane and moved. <laughs> oh, wow. So, so was that like as a newlywed? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, two, no, two years in. So meaning oh, I, okay. I, got, I had my first child in between my first and second year of school. So I had oh, my baby wow. at 21. Then I moved to Houston. Um, so I'm divorced now, but it, we moved because of my ex-husband's job. So we get to Houston and I was just applying to jobs at random. I didn't like, I never intended to go into the healthcare field. I thought I was going to maybe work at a mental health clinic or maybe substance abuse or something like more clinical. Um, And it happened to be one of the jobs I applied to was actually working in a dialysis clinic. And when they called me for the interview, I I literally when they said, Oh, it's from the dialysis, like I didn't even know what dialysis was. I was like, Oh, is that I was like, is that hospice? <laughs> oh my God, I remember. He's like, no, dialysis. <laughs> like, yeah. So I, you know, now I know a lot about dialysis and being treatment for individuals who don't have kidney function, um, or enough kidney function. But it ended up being a fantastic first job working in this clinic where um these people struggling, you know, who, who didn't have kidney function coming in for treatment three days a week for three plus hours to basically have the toxins removed from their body. And so the social workers role there is just helping them adjust to a diagnosis, um, deal with the anxiety, depression, life changes, job changes, so many different things. And so I really ended up starting my career in the medical environment. And also with a high mortality population. So like already the dialysis patients I was working with, there was a high mortality rate. And so I was also, you know, talking a lot about advanced directives and end of life wishes and like having those kinds of conversations with my patients. So, so that, that's how I started. So I did that for four years. You would bring up straight, like, uh, you know, about medical
0: advanced directives and everything. Like you, you weren't like too scared to bring it up.
1: So I definitely was at first because it's so scary and like people could get mad, you know? Right. Are are you telling me I'm dying? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Just hearing you,
0: my heart is like pounding. Like, (gasps) how do you see that?
1: (laughs) Yeah. So like, I, I, you know, there was. Like some months the nurse did the education, some months the dietitian. So like the patients were used to there being like an education day every month. And so when it was my month, like it would be like, and and Medicare mandated this kind of education. It wasn't like optional. So I'd be like, hi, you know, today is where, you know, the education's about advanced directives and, and the importance of, you know, of having these conversations and talking about end of life wishes or talking about if you weren't able to make decisions, who you would want to make decisions for you. Um, and so, you know, I did this four years in a row, <laughs> so I really learned how to, and and I also had to have that conversation with every new patient, but ultimately I ended up making cartoons to make the education more um, palatable. I, I drew this picture of these two dialysis patients sitting next to each other. And the lady, the older lady asks the younger guy, Hey, do you have an advanced directive? And he's like, no, I'm not dying. Why would I? need that. And she's like, well, you know, even if, even if you're not, it's really good to have as a backup, whatever, like I made it as a cartoon. And like that year, so many more people were like, oh yeah, I'll take some of those forms. Yeah, sure. Why don't you give it to me? So, (laughs) (laughs) so yeah, I I figured out how to like do it in a way that was effective. Um, And also like the way social work education is you get your master's and then you need, depending on the state, like I needed two years of supervised clinical work to like get my like LCSW to be uh, like able to, let's say, open up a private practice and not have a supervisor. And so while I was working in dialysis, I actually got that clinical licensure. Um, I had a supervisor. So I was really, even in that medical setting, able to make all of my encounters very focused and under, you know, like focused on the mental health element and, you know, coping and all that kind of stuff.
0: So do you, like, I know that in the firm world, I know that there, I, I think Project NASC and, and different rabbanim, different schools are trying to like bring in an awareness of having all these advanced directives. And um, actually we came out with a book about, uh, maybe it's two years ago already called When Caring Counts Most. And it's talked about a lot, um, terminally ill patient doctors, I guess I should say geriatric, geriatric doctors, did I say that right? And um and lawyers they all wrote about dnrs and dnis and and advanced wills and all these types of things i'm wondering if you like if that part of your job ever came to the film community where you kind of had to convince people and explain how the importance of it
1: so i never ended up like have like having the for a public forum as much as like in my individual conversations that i have with people i think like People have to like. I mean, and and I'll, I'll when I share the palliative care stuff, that's even got took it to way the next level of of these kinds of conversations, um, and the openness with it. But like, it's kind of like people are are so scared of having the conversation, and the fear of the conversation is worse than the conversation, right? You know what I mean? Like they're so scared. Like, and it's like. And it's like one of these myths, we would say in palliative care is that like talking about something doesn't make it happen. (laughs) You know, like talking about what if something happens to me and I'm incapacitated or whatever, like that doesn't mean I'm going to tomorrow become incapacitated. It's not like, you know, and people are so scared that like if they open their mouths, like then it's going to come true. Right. Right.
0: (laughs) It's just, it's funny that you're saying that because I had just last week a question came to me, um, about a girl that is moving from a small community to a new community. I think a larger community and she lost two siblings and she's so afraid of like when people are going to say how many kids are in your family or, or I think it seems like these two siblings were like two in a row. So like there's a large break and people are going to make comments and what should she say? So the question was like, any, any suggestions for her? And I was like, the first thing, is to recognize what you're so afraid of because once you know it, the fear, it's like you took care of half the fear already. Like, <laughs> and then you could figure out how to deal with it. You know, so that's like, interesting that you're bringing that point up, also.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, I love I love the way you answered her. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> okay, so
1: can we go to the children that you were talking about? <laughs> yes, yes. Let's go. Let's go there. So, okay. so mind you, social workers working in a mental health clinic, people already ask them. Isn't your job so depressing? How do you handle it? Okay. Like in a typical mental health setting. So like the general public has a very low tolerance apparently for like hearing other people's problems. Cause that's even already stressful for them to think about. So when I worked in dialysis, people all the time were like, isn't it so depressing? Isn't it so depressing? How do you handle it? Right. And like, when you're there, you're working with a team, you're working with real people. You're joking around. Like it's, it's people like, you're not like in some, like. I don't know, like scary that like, watching one person. Die. Yeah. Like gloomy castle, like what dungeon. Like that's not, right. that's not what it is. Right. And so I already definitely knew I had a, I was able to handle it. You know, I, like I said, I had patients, a lot of patients who passed away and I was able, I was able to handle it. Like I was able to continue working with them and support them the best I could and feel like I was doing my best and stuff like that. So I was looking for my next job to really elevate like my skills. And I ended up being, it was such a shkacha practice. I was in touch with a recruiter um, they, from Texas Children's Hospital, which is one of the, which is the biggest children's hospital in the country and like the top in the top three of like level of care. It's like a teaching hospital. She reached out to me about like a case management job. And I wrote back and I'm like, I don't want to do case management, but this is what I'm looking for. And we ended up speaking and she's like, we're actually forming a brand new palliative care team. And I think you would be a perfect fit. And you would say to me, such a big children's hospital. So recently they didn't have a palliative care team. It's because children's hospitals, like what's their motto? You drive by the children's hospital billboard where every child is healed, right? Like that's the, the mottos in these children's hospitals. And so even just like from a deep, deep organizational standpoint, they they have a very hard time facing the fact that there are children who die, right? It, it's too scary for them or or too like against their motto or whatever. So there's a lot of resistance, but that's why in um, 2016, I believe that's when the, the palliative care team was starting and I was able to join it, which was incredible and exciting. And so because it was a brand new team, um, part of our job, First of all, they sent us to lots of trainings. So I got to go to like the, you know, the social work hospice and palliative care social work conference in Phoenix. And I went to a national Alliance for grieving children conference in Virginia. Like I I really got a lot of training. Um, And our job was also going around the whole hospital, which had thousands and thousands of employees and educate and bust myths about palliative care. So here we are now we're in the, in, in it. Now I'm with palliative care. So ask me some questions. I'm here. <laughs> I'm an open book.
0: What myths did you have to bust?
1: <laughs> okay. The first one is the one that I was telling you about before that people like, they literally think that talking about something like makes it happen, especially like in a precarious situation. Like they feel like just you need to stay hopeful. You need to have good vibes, you know? Right. Um, another one is that palliative care teams are going to just like, Go f- always go for convincing you to like, um, you know, like n- remove life saving measures or whatever. Like always go for like comfort care, um, ending treatment kind of thing. Um, let's see, what's another one? Another one is that palliative care is only for active dying situations, and actually, palliative care is for um, patients with life threatening and life limiting conditions, and it's really about kind of providing, um, support on all different levels, um, for, for individuals who are suffering. And, and it's really even just the patient system is actually the family plus the patient. That's how palliative care, we see it. It's like the unit, the family and patient unit. Yeah. Those are some of the myths. So who did you work more with the child or the family, (laughs) probably the family. (laughs) So in the children's hospital, they have child life specialists. And so like really the most hands on with the kids are the child life specialists. And it's kind of like, even the political element in the hospital, like you don't want to step on anyone's toes. So like, you don't, you don't want to pretend you don't want them to think you're doing their job, vice versa. So definitely most of my work was with the parents. And also, unfortunately, a lot of the kids like were either nonverbal or not conscious who I was working with. So it was really a lot working with parents, but like, like, like some of my teenage Patients, like I definitely worked more one-on-one with them. And like, I mean, it was always like small interactions, but mostly guiding parents. And how do
0: you deal with parents that are losing a child or that their child is so limited?
1: It takes, I think, a lot of humility. Like you really have to go into every encounter thinking, I cannot imagine what this parent is going through. And and really, just like realizing this person is going through the worst crisis of their life right now, and I am just going to be here and support them however they need me, even if that means that they just want me to get them a cup of water. It's just like you really have to, like, you really have to have a lot of respect for for what the circumstances are, um, you know. And and there's so many different types of of dynamics. Like there's situations where a kid is born with severe um, problems and, you know, and sometimes where the parents knew w- when they're pregnant, sometimes when they didn't, and that's a different dynamic, right? right? Sometimes a kid is sick for a few years. Sometimes a kid has an, is in an accident. Like there's such different situations that make it like such a, very different dynamics. And then you just go home and forget all about it. <laughs> no, so, so actually it ended up hitting me a lot harder than my work in dialysis. And that's because I had three little kids at home. Right. And so what happened was, is like, I got there, started meeting, you know, even just an orientation, meeting different families, seeing different things. Like, and some things like really, really hit me very hard. But I just like tried to cope with it in the way that I was used to. Like, okay, this is them, this is me. And I thought I was doing well. And then I think like a month in, I was watching this, like, I don't know if you ever heard of like Disney, Pixar, but like they have sometimes like these little five minute like animated clips. And I saw this animated clip of this little girl trying to sell candles and like freezing cold in Russia and like whatever. She can't sell, sell candles and then she keeps lighting them to stay warm and then like she dies at the end. I started crying. I couldn't stop crying. I could not stop crying. And it wasn't just because of that thing. It was like clearly I was, I had so much emotion bottled up inside me that like I was intellectualizing and explaining away. Cause that's definitely one of my own coping mechanisms, like intellectualizing. And it made me realize like, even if in the moment, I don't think it's hitting me that hard. It is, it really is. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So
0: is that when you like got out of this or you just so learned? No. So, so, so basically
1: have- that, so from then on, I realized I needed to be much more active in processing and not just like rely on my like good boundaries or whatever. Like, so I really spent a lot, a lot of time discussing cases and things that hit me harder with my colleagues. So, like, there was a bereavement specialist on my team, a chaplain, the doctors, the nurse, the nurse practitioner, like the admins, like, you know, and we all knew these kids and these families. And so, like, when things would hit me extra hard, like, I would just process it through and talk it through as much as I needed. And so really making sure not to keep, you know, like kind of process as I go. Um,
0: so talking it through over and over again is the way we process things?
1: So no. So for me with these cases, let's say I was me and the bereavement specialist went in and had a really difficult conversation with a family. And let's say I didn't talk it through. and I just went home. Like instead kind of like we called the debriefing. So like, wow. When the dad said, you know, let's say we had a dad who asked, who said, I feel like I'll never be happy again. Will I be? And like, that's a really intense question to hear. And so just like talking it through with the bereavement specialist and like us just processing that together of just like, you know, just like, just more saying like, wow, that was sad to hear. And just like recognizing the feelings that we were having. That's really what I mean, rather than just like being so cold and professional, you know?
0: Right. Right. Wow. Um, okay. So what about anticipatory grief? You told me that you worked with that. And I said to you, how can you really comfort someone before the person didn't even die yet? (laughs) So,
1: yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's also, it's important that like comfort, it's really not the word I use for what I did because I think it's almost presumptuous to think you can comfort someone whose child is dying. Um, I don't mean to say you're presumptuous. I'm just saying the word that well, we it think goes along with
0: that humility. Like, you know, your strengths you, or, or your limitations. You can't comfort someone.
1: <laughs> exactly. And so there's this um, fantastic article written by uh, um, a palliative care social worker, which is sitting with suffering. And it's this concept that like, you can't, you can't go in there and think like, you're going to see something that makes it better. Like you, you're not the only, like there is an inherent suffering here. You don't even want to take it away. You need to let somebody feel the feeling like it is very painful. And so instead of trying to like, I don't know, say something that makes them feel good. It's more about being there with them and saying, it's okay. This is really painful. And I'm here with you. You're not alone, but not like Oh, you'll move on like, you know, or whatever stupid things people would say, right. It's a very important concept that I think translates across life. There are circumstances in life that are inherently painful and we have to let, we have to let them be right. Like not, not that someone has to be pro in prolonged suffering mode, but we're sometimes so uncomfortable with other people's pain that we try to fix it. But that actually makes it worse or makes the person then feel isolated. So really the interesting part is the ending of her article is that interestingly, by not trying to fix it, you end up comforting them because then they feel at peace, they feel okay that they can that it can be hard and that and, and have permission that it can be right. hard. Right. Right. Um yeah. And even get to the anticipatory grief. somehow I ended up talking about that. <laughs> okay. So that's good. So anticipatory grief is really that like imagining what, how painful it's going to be, right? Like, like I, I'm not going to be able to handle it. I'm not going to live like this. Like I, like life will be over, you know, like those kinds of feelings. And so it's, it's similar to grief in other ways of just be sitting with it because it is true. They are going to, going to be really rough. And so it's almost just sitting there with someone as they talk it out how they imagine it's going to be. And that's also like, interestingly comforting to just have for permission, like to that it's going to be hard and, and talking it through. Like I remember, you know, a dad that I was talking to, actually a teenage dad. I worked with some teenage parents who had like kids. So like, that was really interesting because it was like teenager and they have a baby, right? So a teen, a teenage dad who was, Part of his anticipatory grief was talking about how he was going to cope or that he wanted to work in the medical field or that he was going to get a tattoo of his son's footprint on his arm. Like even processing through how he was going to try to cope is very, it's just, it just gives the space. Like I just think of it as giving them uh, someone the space to talk about how they think they might feel.
0: Right. It's almost the same thing as, as being well, no, not almost. It is being too afraid when you, when you work through those fears and you go through it and you work through it, then it's like, okay, like it might be painful, but it's, it's, you know, we're going to get through this uh, for how long
1: after should we take, should we take a deep breath? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's intense. It's, it's like, it's heavy. It's, it really It's sad. Like, you know, I would always try to be mindful of not even like giving, going into any specifics Because it's actually worse to hear about the stories than to be there. Because when you hear a story, you feel so helpless. You just hear this sad story of a kid dying. When you're there, like as a social worker with the skills to support someone, you feel like you're making a positive difference in a crisis. And so it's an empowered feeling versus a helpless feeling of hearing the story. So, like, I try to be mindful of that when and not sharing like too many like specifics or stories because I know that. Someone I'll share it with will feel terrible where I felt like empowered in the situation because I was doing something. You know what I mean?
0: Totally. I totally get it. But my sigh, I'll tell you what my sigh was about. It was more even the, the images that are coming into my head now with after my brother died. My brother was 14. He died from leukemia. And we, I'm, from, I'm from out of town. I'm from Detroit. So when he went into hospice, it was for, I don't know, maybe a few days only, maybe it was two weeks, whatever, definitely not more than two weeks. Um, and, you know, they used to come over every day and they did their things and whatever. But actually, he after he actually died, um, they were there. And, like, the, the whole, like, community, like, my house was filling up with neighbors, friends, family, like, just so quickly that, like, they realized that like they're just they're they're not needed, and they they left they felt uncomfortable, like they were trying to pull out their literature and say the things that they always say, and they were like they just felt stupid, so they they just left so what's my point over here? I'm not sure <laughs> number one, I guess I'm like going back to that you know to those days,
1: but also um maybe just that need that need that people feel to fix it versus sitting with it, right like that's definitely
0: maybe like relative. almost like it's fake. Yeah. Like this is what you do by each family, you no know, matter what the, you know. And and then you go into your car and you stop at Dunkin' to buy yourself your coffee yeah. and you right. go home. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Would you follow up with the family for like a while after? Or?
1: So we had a one-year follow-up plan. Wow. So um, so the bereavement specialist who used she used to be a child life specialist and she transitioned into the role of the grief um, specialist. Um, she would, she created, um, different like printouts, um, and, and like resources that like she would send on, let's say like quarterly, like there was different frequency that she would send these, um, mailings with, let's say, you know, and, and different ones for, let's say there were siblings. So like in the siblings one, she would include a list of books that could be helpful for the siblings. um, Around holiday times, when it's like like around like the Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, because that's you know we none of our patients are Jewish, in Texas, um, have as it happened to be, but like she would send a special printout then, like because that could be an extremely painful time for people, especially like that first year without right. without their kid. Um, so, important. I mean, we also we sent always a card right after the kid. Um, passed away. And like with our personal notes of like our thoughts or our memories or conversation, whatever about the kid, whatever was relevant. Right. right.
0: And did they um, ever come back to you for more?
1: Um. So then, so that we did that and we did phone call check-ins. And so most of the calls she did, the bereavement specialist, but like some families, like she split up between me and the chaplain, depending on our relationships with them. And so the most interesting part was really these bereavement calls because it was astonishing, like how many people were were really like coping and living their lives. Like, and like, you know, because like I guess there's this feeling that like that life will stop forever and that's how they feel when you see them. And I'm not saying at the three month call, um, but just meaning sadness, but like also living. So um I think like the families that had other kids I saw like seemed to bounce back a little quicker just because I guess the kids were keeping them busy versus like a silent home. You know what I mean? Right. Right. But I, I loved being able to listen and hear how different, you know, people were doing meaning what we call like the official term is like meaning making. Right. And like what people did or like started a fundraiser or whatever it is, like different things that people would do to just you know, carry on the memory. So it was, and I just, just being able to be there for them, you know, someone who got it because since I was there with them in it, like they really felt an extra connection to like the bereavement follow-up. You know what I mean? Right.
0: Right. I know now you live in Passaic. I don't know exactly when you moved, but you, you've worked with grief in Passaic with, from families also, no?
1: So yes, a small part of my practice. I wouldn't say the majority of it, but it like a small part of it, just because the people who know me and know my background will, let's say, refer for that. Mm-hmm.
0: So, did you see a difference between the from and the not from that lost a child?
1: Like how they coped with it? I I think that like having a religion makes it, it is very different in regard to like making meaning even in anger but like it's still not that like randomness feeling that someone could have who doesn't have any faith so like i've seen let's say even very like when with my patients the ones who had very strong faith in their religions they really like they had a focus because they were praying you know what i mean like it was they had somewhere to direct their energy and so i definitely think that Overall, in regard to like, like, bigger picture, I think I've seen like having faith to make a difference. But a problem is in the from community is that there's a very, there's like, we're very, there's a very strong resistance to to death. And what I mean is that like, someone could have multi system organ failure and end stage cancer and on a community level, they're still like, let's daven forever. When physically, like, it's just not, it's not possible. And so there's this, there's, there's, how do we grapple with, you know, like emuna and like the fact that Hashem could do a miracle with also like being realistic and making sure you have the opportunity for that last conversation. Cause that last conversation, it's not happening when, when you go, when the person gets to a point that they're you know, whatever that the family's in denial. Essentially, they don't they don't end up having those final words with somebody. And so, I think that there's just so much fear, and that like when I see these things that go around for Tehillim of like these circumstances that are so clearly medically, like like someone with severe brain injury, like these things that are or didn't have oxygen for thirty minutes. It's these kinds of things. I think like for whatever reason has become equated with like Amuna to be like. Oh no, it's going to be fine, or whatever. So I think that, yeah, it, it's that's something that I see as a very big challenge, actually.
0: So what what you're what you really would like to get out there is that obviously we still dive in because even if it's not for a fool, whatever the per- it will help the person, whatever it is. But we still stay to him. But at the same time, to really like accept what's really happening, because at the end. It could really be more, much more painful for you if you don't.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I also think like it ends up, it ends up like then it's really like denial masked with faith. Um, right. Like, and, and also like there's hospice, like there's such, such thing as someone dying at home and then there's dying in a hospital. It is so much more of a peaceful um and more closury type of situation when, when someone's able to recognize that um, that the person's dying and they can actually like just have the family around them and not be like in a sterile hospital environment. And that you miss that on out on that too. When you you really just can't face it. Right. Right. And and like, I'm just such a big believer, like, especially like already starting when I worked in dialysis, but once I started working in palliative care, I just started being more open with an, an encouraging openness and people to like, it's okay. to like, talk about what your wishes would be. Or if God forbid something happened to you and your husband, like who would you want your children to go to? Like, it's, okay. it, it doesn't mean that something's going to happen to you and your husband. It's like, we just need to be more open with like thinking through these things. And like, you know, I, I remember situations where like, they're like with this, teenage girl where the parents were trying to remember that they once watched TV show and somebody was, was like in a coma and did the girl say that she wouldn't want to live like this or not like these situations where you're trying to remember, because when you're acting as a proxy, you always have to act and operate under what you're doing, what you think the person would want, not what you want. That's what it is to be a proxy. You have to do what you think the person would want. And so when you're trying to think about it, like if you don't have any idea, it's very, it's, it's, it's even worse, you know? And so it's, you know, whatever, obviously like there's a difference between like a young person with no medical issues versus somebody who does have serious medical issues. And like, it's, it's just so important and it, it right. you know, right. <clears throat> it's funny. Cause
0: I went, um, I I went by myself, I flew into Detroit in the summer And it was just a quick in-and-out trip. But, okay, then I was just being weird, I guess, because I I had this, like, fear of, like, something happening to me on the flight. I just had this, like, unrealistic, crazy fear. But I called up, like, my friends. I'm like, okay, so if Chas Hashalom, I die on this plane, could you take care of my kids in this way? And then I called my other friend. I'm like, okay, so so so-and-so is going to do this for my daughter. What could you do for my boys? Like, Okay, but that was just being a little weird. But what you're saying is don't be weird. Sometimes just be realistic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I think that sometimes we're hit with these these fears and then we think like, do I have a sixth sense cuz is something really going to happen? <laughs> right. You know, like and then it can like turn into this like maybe I have a premonition.
0: <laughs> <Right>. You hear <laughs> stories like that, you just never
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but but the, but I think in terms of like people who are like young like us, right, with kids the most practical thing here that it comes down to is about light, when people don't get life insurance, okay? And that's something that this fear of dying or that this avoidance or denial is what ends up with people having to have ads in the newspaper and GoFundMes and uh, whatever the, the Jewish version of it is, chesed, whatever. I don't know, whatever. Right. <laughs> like that's, that's where you see these situations where these families have no money Because they didn't get life insurance. Where life insurance, you can get even a small policy that's not that expensive. It could be a few hundred dollars a year for, like, a $500,000 policy. Like, people, but they're just, like, they can't even, like, let their brain go there. You know? Right. Right. I've had life insurance for seven years, maybe. Well, I know. I think we got it also. I think as
0: soon as we got married, my husband was, like, well into it. Mm -hmm. and yeah no it's true it's so important um so let me ask you like this and again if you don't feel comfortable you could just say so I know that you've been through in your own personal life I'm wondering how you take all this into your own personal life with your divorce and I know you've mentioned special needs child
1: yeah so interestingly the reason I had to leave that job was because I gave birth to a child with medical issues oh wow and so I worked for two years and like a lot of palliative care, people think cancer, but a lot of it is actually special needs kids with like severe special needs. Um, but I was, so I I was working with these families. Right. And like I said, also, sometimes it wasn't only end of life. There was also life limiting stuff where just like the quality of life was really, really terrible. So like I would see people like in outpatient appointments, not just like inpatient in ICU. And I remember when I was pregnant, like, I remember when I first was walked around the person who walked me around the cardiovascular ICU, she was a social worker who was getting married. And she's like, like, there's babies with heart problems everywhere. She's like, I can't imagine never having kids because when you work here, you feel like all kids have medical problems. And I remember like laughing. I'm like, oh, it's fine. I have three kids. Like, you know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, I was just like, ah, you got to chill out. (laughs) anyways, when I was like, when I was pregnant with my daughter, like, it wasn't the kind of thing that like you could tell before she was born. Um, is it like a spontaneous mutation, um, that she has, but when she was born and, and her medical issues became apparent, it was just very, very unique experience to have been working and supporting people on one side of things and then to like, be the patient, (laughs) be the one that the social worker comes to check in on, you know, and, and ultimately she needed to a high level of care for me to continue working full-time. And so that really, that's what triggered me to leave the job and and actually leave, like we left Houston and um, came to be closer to family, just to have to have more support. Essentially, like I was thinking like, I remember seeing this mom who, who we can't, we saw her, she had a special needs son a teenager. And like, it somehow came up in the appointment that it was her birthday that day. And like, she wasn't doing anything for it. And she just was so tired and so just spent. And like, her whole life was devoted to this kid. And I remember the doctor I was with, she's so funny. She gave her her like glitter pen or something for her birthday present. <laughs> she was adorable, that doctor, but that kind of, that really stuck with me as like this mom was really not. who who really like lost herself in the care of her child. I also seen situations where the the parents start revolving their whole life revolves around that kid with the medical issues and or special needs. And then it really negatively affects the children. Um, And I've also seen like the medical saga type where like their life becomes defined by like each hospitalization and updating everyone in this day and this and this medication and this, and this doctor saying this and like, And that's also like you start defining your life. A good week is when when the kid is good and a bad week like for you is when the kid's medical stuff is worse. And so knowing all of that, I remember I had multiple conversations like with my colleagues actually before I left, like I cannot let that be me. I cannot lose myself in taking care of this beautiful girl. I cannot neglect my other children. I just, I won't. And I can't define my week or my day or my hour or my minute by how she's, her circumstance or are doing, or how's her development or how's this or that, you know? And I feel like that made such a huge difference um, because I had that mindset going through. And that's why actually it's not out of privacy as much that like, I don't really talk about it so much on LinkedIn. It's more that like, I don't define myself by it. Like. I I have so much to offer. I don't, my whole story doesn't have to be that I'm the mother of a child with medical problems and special needs. Like, I, because I very specifically do not want even like my identity revolving around it.
0: And you're such a like positive, upbeat person, just like the way you're, your voice, your smile. I just when I picture you. There's like that smile. <laughs> so I think you're doing a good job of that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So I know that now you, as I said, as we said in the beginning, you do this, you know, um, helping parents, what's it called again? Oh, Thriving Working Mom. Yeah. (laughs) So how did you like, I guess, get into that? It's totally different uh, field over here. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, I've been doing private practice for the last few years and I also work for Wurzweiler Social Work School and I work with social work students and like helping them with in their placements. I have, I supervise students. So like. I meet one-on-one and we discuss their cases. Um, And so like clinically, like I really love that. I love teaching people how to be therapists. So I have those things going on in my life, you know, right now. And I also, I, I have opportunities to talk about my, you know, like experience with grief. I do have clients too with that. I actually also have spoken a few times for an organization, which is amazing, amazing, called My Team which is for, from girls with invisible illnesses, basically chronic illnesses that you can't see from the outside, but very strongly impact their lives. So like we gave a talk, for example, on the stages of grief and chronic illness and like how grief really can be applied to like any challenge, right? Like any disappointment, any loss that grief, like these principles. So it's, I I love being able to use that how I can Um, definitely with my, with my circumstances, with my daughter, like I wouldn't want to put myself in a position that like I'm working in any, with anything that's like too close to home for sure. Like I know my limits, you know? And so like, I I definitely, I wouldn't consider like going right, going back into that kind of environment. And also I need to keep my hours flexible for just for care. But I, as a working mom myself, for all these years, like I said, I had my first baby while I was in social work school. And like, so I've been working and mothering all along. (laughs) And at this point, um, you know, I am divorced. So I'm a single mom and a mothering and a mothering, a child with special needs and working. And I love it. And I feel like I've come to a space of feeling so like joyful and peaceful and balanced in my work and with my parenting. And, and I feel like just the combination of my own experiences and all of my knowledge and my work with, with families, I just want to be able to help and support other moms and like help them capture that, that sense of joy and peace really. Wow. That's amazing.
0: It's nice. I I remember like at one point in my life, kind of waking up and just wishing it could be the night and I could just go to sleep again like i just didn't want to do the day and i don't know how long that was for but when i realized that i wasn't in that place anymore and i could wake up excited for each day it was like a really good feeling <laughs> it was really nice to be able to know that like i'm happy
1: <laughs> i'm content even though my life is far from perfect you know so i like that absolutely i totally relate like i de- i definitely had like after my daughter was born, like I, I experienced significant depression. Like I know right now, I'm sounding all pep- like peppy and upbeat because like those were, that was my mindset, and I was able to ultimately carry it out. But like it doesn't mean that at first I wasn't devastated and and really going through a hard time. And so similarly, because I went through those months where I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning, and some days where I just didn't um appreciating not being in that state. Like it's a different it's a different energy. So what what you said really resonated for me. Right. I hear that.
0: Um, it's also like, if you don't go through the feelings of the pain and the sadness and the grief, then you, you might pretend that you're happy. You might, you know, say to people, Oh, I'm so happy and smile and whatever, but you can't really be
1: happy. So it's important to really go through all that pain to really get to that serene place. And you're just pushing it off because it's going to, it's going to gang up on you at some point. you're you're prolonging something. So do you want to, and that's why I call it feel as you go. Like it is much better to process it. Um, and, and just feel the pain. Obviously like there's different types of pain. The loss of a loved one is a very different kind of pain than even having a child with special needs or losing a job or getting divorced. There's different, whatever there's different levels, but, um, you have to feel it. There's no like shortcut. You can't just like bypass it or like read a book, a motivational book that'll help you just not deal with that. Some things are, like I said, inherently painful, inherently painful. Right. Okay. So
0: I just want to like recap, I think like some of the important points that like, I think the whole world should hear and take in Mm -hmm. (laughs) is to tell me if I missed anything. um, To really, you know, don't let the fear be your like stopper, like, you know, recognize it so you can work through it. And then the fear will be like, you know, half or even less than half. Um, Also, it's important to like really process whatever it is that you're going through, whether it's talking with, you know, your friends, your coworkers, a therapist, whatever it may be. It's important to really work through everything that is coming up for a person. And also not to deny it, because again, when we're denying it, it's just going to, it's just, it's there and it's going to come out somewhere. Um And my gosh, and to be like you. <laughs> <Don't>, <laughs>
1: Don't get lost. I feel that challenge. way about you. So I guess we're well-matched.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I don't know. I'm like amazed. Like how you like, you're so articulate about it. And I love how you say it, how like not to get lost in the challenge, but to really like recognize where you want to be and to like work through it, to let yourself get there. That's very special. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Something that you said, that it just brought up something for me that I really want to share because it's so critical it is so easy for people who are grieving to isolate themselves from people and push people away. And because it brought up when you were saying the thing about processing. And so people are so scared when somebody is grieving because they just are so scared of saying the wrong thing. They're so scared. Like, They'll even avoid going to a ship house because they're just so scared they're going to say something wrong. So like, there are the people who are not, who are the opposite, who are so not scared that they're going in and saying very inappropriate, silly things, right. but then there are the people who, who really care deeply and are so worried about like, just bringing it up if it wasn't on your mind and then, oh, I was having a good day and now you brought it up or whatever. Right. And so I think like, as, as much as someone's able to, you know, like give tell, tell their friends like what, what they would like. Like, yeah, I I do appreciate frequent check-ins or I would appreciate if you asked me about it every time you see me or whatever, like what, because for some people that's really what they want. They want, they want it to be acknowledged, especially like shortly after every single time they talk because it's always on their minds. Right. And it helps make that real or, or like it, it obviously takes some like presence of mind to be able to do that. But
0: it's, it takes presence of mind and also like not the fear of vulnerability. Right.
1: right. <laughs> I right. know
0: because I, I, I mean, I wrote about this in, in the book that I wrote, I wish someone would have told me that, you know, the book for teens. And like, I wrote about that and I, I wrote about like, you know, being sarcastic. It's way easier to throw so, a sarcastic remark out to someone than to say, you know, I really would like you to check in with me and see how I'm doing. And, um, I even got this question again this week about this this girl that had her, her father's Yerzai. She wanted her friends to know how they should respond to her. Should they say something? Should they ignore it? Should they do this? Should they do that? And she was struggling with it. At the end, she told a few of her close friends, this is what I need. I just need people to tell me I'm thinking of you. Like, that's it. No, you know, let's talk about your father. And know, like, oh my gosh, I'm so sad for you. And she just said what she needed and she got it. And like, it was good. And
1: like, it, it's like the simplest thing. That could be the hardest thing. <laughs> Right, but I love that. That's such a perfect illustration, right? Where like you you know, and and that's and like people who let's say don't get it because they haven't been through it. If they're your friends and they care about you, they want to be there for you. They just don't know how to be. And so like giving them, it's really a gift to them, but ultimately yourself because what you're doing then is not closing yourself off or getting into that zone of nobody understands me. I can't talk to anyone. Letting them be part of the process with you.
0: Right. Right. Okay. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate that you came on and I think you're really amazing and you should continue to have lots of tatzachla in all your work.
1: Yeah. Oh, thank you. It's it's been so wonderful speaking with you. Every time we talk, I like just I'm so happy and I, I just feel so inspired and reading your articles and then feeling like I know her. I, I really um yeah, I appreciate you having me on and I hope that people out there listening, you know that there were pieces that could be, could be supportive or enlightening for them.
0: You have just listened to an episode by Miriam Ribiat. For more episodes or for additional information on future episodes, visit our website www.hevralomdemishna.org or email mribiat at hevralomdemishna.org